One woman told me about someone trying to set her hijab on fire. You have women who could have lived had they had access to health. Young men are like routinely excluded from civilian death counts. They are the most vulnerable to recruitment, but when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of migrant to arrive. I, as a human being, will not stand for this type of behaviour. Hey, my name is Andrew T. Sevenson, and welcome back to Peace and Gender, a podcast for the people who are interested in learning a bit more about gender, peace and conflict. A topic that's come up a lot in this podcast is how there are so many stereotypes regarding men and women, such as in militaries or in diplomacy. Today, we will be looking at the gendered stereotypes around young migrants. Why are young migrant men seen as inherently dangerous, while young women are seen as victims? And why are so many young men fleeing their countries? Leslie Prout and Helen Behrens have studied this. And in today's episode, they will discuss the importance of looking at young people when talking about conflict. And also how important it is to try and change the dialogue, this gender stereotype dialogue around young migrants. Leslie is a senior lecturer at Monash University, and Helen is a lecturer in the School of Justice at Queensland University of Technology. But why did Leslie and Helen start studying youth, conflict and peace building? Here is Helen. In some ways, to answer the question, um, I have to note that I lived overseas when I was a kid with my family. Um, we lived in Latin America, um, obviously very in a very privileged position as, as expats and I went to international school. But I think it was the first time that I kind of encountered very visibly these questions of inequality and, um, you know, confront ideas of poverty. And, you know, I was quite young and thinking about what all, what all that meant, being young and encountering people who were my age and, you know, in such different situations and how young people coped in, in those environments, um, I think kind of sat in the back of, in the back of my head. Um, and so as I got to doing my honours and, and post-grad work, um, that was where my, my interest took me because I couldn't help but ask why we weren't talking about young people when we were talking about questions of inequality and questions of peace building and responding to, to violence because they're always there when, when you look and yet we don't talk about them. Harris Leslie. Uh, so I was a first-generation high school graduate. Neither of my parents finished school. And, you know, now being a PhD graduate is like a thing that I couldn't have envisioned probably as a little child. I didn't know anybody that had a PhD. I, You know, maybe my school teachers I knew that had college degrees. But what I did know and what I learned through that time uh, with many amazing young people around me was that, you know, young people are interested, they're engaged, they're knowledgeable, and not just the young people who, you know, come from a background that expects them to excel academically or to engage in politics, but that, you know, that all young people have various capacities for that and, and deserve to be listened to. And so that's always been a passion of mine is like supporting young people in the next generation and thinking about how we can think together and how we can have mm-hmm. intergenerational leadership to make, you know, the change that we need to affect society that's more inclusive for everyone. Why is it important to look at young people when it comes to conflict and peace? 
oh, we can be here all day. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we are the people to ask about this. We're very um, passionate, yeah, about convincing people, especially in our field in international relations, which often completely overlooks young people, yeah. uh, often pays no attention to them whatsoever, or when it does, talks about them only under these, you know, tropes, these stereotypes, uh, ad infinitum, young people as perpetrators and young people as victims. And, you know, that this idea that young people fall into one or the other of those, and that's sort of where they stay. And uh, we and other scholars that are working on young people in peace and conflict studies and in international relations, you know, are really invested in trying to work to change those views, to recognize the plurality, the diversity of stories that come with young people's lives. This is crucial, and we can't build a more peaceful world with better outcomes for everybody if we're leaving out a huge proportion of the population. Simply, young people are people, and they have a right to be heard and to participate, and that's really important to recognize and to support. So I'm nodding furiously and realize we're recording a podcast, so it's not very helpful. We do that to each other all the time. <laughs> that's okay. Both Helen and Leslie have studied youth and conflict, and in 2010, Helen went back to Latin America. So I, um, as part of my PhD work, um, I spent four months uh, in, in Colombia in 2010, um, I lived in Bogota and I worked in a uh, informal illegal community that was on the outskirts of the city, actually in the neighbouring city. But you know those those communities um, you know blend into into one another. Um, so this is a, a community of um, predominantly internally displaced people um, uh, who are very poor who um, came to this community over the last few uh, generations. So it's a illegal community originally they're slowly gaining um, rights to their land but I worked there through a foundation that supported a school in that site and I'd spend about four days a week on average for those four months basically hanging out in the community talking to young people helping out in the school hanging out with families and just spending time with them to understand what goes on in their life so this is I mean I, I say it's not truly ethnographic you know, in the in the anthropological sense, perhaps, but drawing on that training and that knowledge to really try and understand their lives and in the context of their life, rather than just dropping in and, and interviewing them and, and disappearing to really understand what's going on around them when when they're talking uh, to me about things. You know, so I understand the context. Both Leslie and Helen believe it's important to look at young people when talking about displacements and when talking about the European migration crisis. What we're seeing today in the past several years is the largest displacement of people from conflict since World War II. Uh, you know, that gets bandied about, um, it, it, but it bears repeating because, it, it, you know, it, it is an, an anomaly in that sense, even though this is an issue that's going on all the time. So maybe in that sense, uh, you know, what people might only see as a crisis now has been a crisis for many people in their lives for decades or for their lifetime. So I guess it's just to take the opportunity with the attention that is available to this to say, hey, yeah, as we've been saying, <laughs> this is important. So how can we think, uh, you know, about what experiences young people are having? And in this particular uh, situation of conflict, uh, you know, related migration, we're looking specifically at the European context, where there's been a great deal of attention to the fact that the majority of people migrating and seeking asylum in this context are overwhelmingly young. And uh, disproportionately male in this case. And that's really brought about a lot of interest from policy makers who have particular views on that and leverage that in the way they talk about it to particular political ends. 
Leslie and Helen recently wrote an article about this with their colleague Gail Monroe called Gender and Age in the Construction of Male Youth in the European Migration Crisis. Well, I think what um, the the so-called you know, European refugee crisis, and I'm, I'm using air quotes even though we're, <laughs> we're on the radio, um, is um, the fact that they're, they, as you say, are young men and the, the kind of coverage that has... Um, that has come about about this and the attention that's been given to it draws upon these long-held stereotypes that Leslie and I have both looked at in, in various work, right, that young men, particularly young men in places that are affected by conflict, are inherently violent, they're predisposed to, you know, join gangs, they are um, going to cause problems, you know, the I think often... Um, bandied about and not fully understood um, flawed proposition of the youth bulge, right? That when there's more young people, particularly young men, the country is more likely going to end up in conflict despite repeatedly proving that that's not the case, right? These become really dominant narratives in, in policy making and in public discourse about these kind of events. And so I think what the European refugee crises, um, um, so-called, um, really brought home is that... Um, when we see these um, people arriving, you know, in quote unquote, global north countries and the problem arrives quite on our shores, right, suddenly then how we talk about and engage with these populations that are coming. The discourse around peace and conflict is very often gendered in the way that young men are seen as threats while young women are seen as victims. And this is what Helen and Leslie looks at in their article. I guess firstly, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of feminism. So this is not to speak for all feminists, but I would think it's part of our shared feminist project is partly like denaturalizing assumptions about gender, right? And so what we're critiquing here is especially about these ideas that like, Young men are inherently naturally like this, you know, these sort of biologically determinist arguments. And, you know, of course, we think young men and young women and people who might not identify as others have a whole lot of different, you know, options or ways that they might feel or experience and do. And at the same time as acknowledging, you know, as I found in my research and field work with young people in a variety of conflict-affected contexts, that there is a lot of pressure on young men in these mm. settings and in other settings to participate in violence and, and a lot of danger sometimes if they refuse to participate in that. So that's, you know, one of the key points that we keep reiterating is that, you know, often why they're being seen in the threat in this case is actually why they're under threat somewhere else, you know. So th they're trying to flee from being forced into that in many contexts and then being being treated as a threat on arrival, which has implications Helen has also seen this gender discourse around young migrant men at the U.S. border. Some work that I've been doing with a colleague looking at um, the U.S. border and, and young migrants coming up through Central America. Um, and um, as Leslie pointed out before, and this is a, you know, a classic example, the reason that they are overwhelmingly young men coming in is because in their home countries, they are the most vulnerable to recruitment by the by the gangs, by the maras, by you know uh, whatever's going on in their in their home country. But when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of of migrant to arrive. So young migrant men are seen as a threat, while they are the ones who, in many ways, are extremely vulnerable in their home country. So when they arrive in a new country, they're seen as inherently dangerous while they are actually fleeing from something dangerous back home. And this happens just because of their gender, because they're men. 
I asked Leslie if there's any specific examples of this. Well, one of the examples that we used in our paper and that you see um, common in foreign policy, you know, going back to this youth bulge idea, which we're critical of. But, you know, we've got colleagues who have written about how quote-unquote, military-age males, young men, are, like, routinely excluded from civilian death counts, for example, Mm. by the U.S. And you've seen this phrase used in the news in recent years. Um, We use an example on our paper from, uh, you know, a military guy who in Fox News was using this phrase saying no military-age males should be allowed in, and he said that's a Trojan horse, you know, and it was like we have to protect our country, and to do that we cannot let any young men in. And it sort of equated that if you were a young man and you're in this age, you're inherently a danger and threat, and we have to keep that. And we see that discourse being really common and popularized and that it's sort of drawing on this demographic difference in this migration about how it is disproportionately young and male that people are leveraging that to these political ends and it's coming up loads and loads of times in the media and I think really different to some previous reports in different contexts where refugees were often referred to as women and children which was used to shorthand innocent and in this way is being used to shorthand dangerous and both of those are oversimplifications and need to be rethought. The news is important to look at when it comes to this stereotype gender discourse as well. Helen and Leslie start their article with looking at what happened when the image of Syrian boy Alan Kurdi went viral in the news. You may remember Alan Kurdi was this small child, a toddler, a Syrian who was fleeing and his family hoped to be able to migrate to Canada, which at the time policy-wise was very unlikely that that would be possible, but they had family there and that was their hope and their intention. And this child drowned at sea and washed up onto shore. And the picture was taken and that picture went viral. First, there was a reaction where there was this global sense of somebody has to do something. And there were actually policy changes around that. And I think that's been credited in a variety of ways with changing, you know, the Canadian government at the time, which was the perceived uh, or the intended host country, I guess, for this family, did change policy to make it more open and did and did, you know, intake more Syrian refugees. You had the opening of the borders in Germany. You had these various reactions. But then also within this very short period of time, you had these, you know, outlets putting these things like these cartoons saying, uh, you know, using this child's image to say, well, eventually he would have done this. So, you know, uh, we have to keep these men out. And, and you know, that for us was this sort of problematic was like, how, how does that sentiment in, in the press or how does that sentiment in the public shift so quickly from, oh, this is a huge problem, we have to do something about it to this is a huge problem and we have to keep everybody out. So, uh, and we're interested in like, what is the language? What are the narratives? And for us, we saw that there was this real common dynamic that the way that that worked was through saying, focusing on these demographics around this being young men and referring back again and again to how young men must be dangerous. That was Leslie Prout and Helen Behrens. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Peace and Gender. My name is Andrea Teese Evanson, and this podcast was produced for Manas Gender, Peace and Security, and Mojo News.